Excellent. Um, we are up to the third Parsha, Lech Lecha, where we are introduced to the story of Abraham. Mm. Uh, and I, uh, let's say a blessing for studying Torah, and then I'll tell you what, where I'm um, focused today. I think you'll find it interesting. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kitshan B'mitzvotav, V'tzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, source of life, who sanctifies us with your mitzvot and has given us the mitzvah of engaging with the words of the Torah. Amen. Thank you. Hello, Oregon and Florida and all parts in between and Woodstock and Dutchess County and Albany and Philly. What fun. How great. Okay. So today I turned to a teacher that I like to listen to a lot, who I've spoken with you about before, named Rabbi David Foreman. Uh, his organization is called, just a moment, I'm going to show that to you. I mean, I'll not show it to you, I'll just tell you about it, and then I'll show it to you later. It's called alephbeta.org, A-L-E-P-H-B-E-T-A, alephbeta.org. And uh, Rabbi Foreman is a modern Orthodox rabbi down in uh, the five towns in Long Island, who I find to be so insightful. I've actually subscribed to his, um, uh, his teachings. One of the things that's interesting about that for me, and I know I've said this before, is that sometimes my experience of modern Orthodox uh, teachers is that they get so focused on quoting different commentators and commentaries that I can lose the forest for the trees. And I, that, does, that doesn't mean it's not a worthwhile undertaking, but it, it doesn't, the, the, for me, often the deep teaching doesn't come across. It's more like the fireworks of uh, how, how many quotes you can pull up. And Rabbi Foreman is doing something different. He's really keeping his eye on the ball of what is the Torah trying to teach us. And his focus, which I find so appealing, is on literary analysis. He goes deep. He, doesn't, he knows all the commentaries, but his focus is on the text itself and finding the through lines, the clues, the patterns in the Torah text that illuminate what he thinks is the central theme of the teaching. So... I highly recommend his teachings. He does them mostly with these cute little um, uh, um, animated videos that are, uh, I think it's probably a good technique because you're getting to watch while, while you learn. And uh, they're 10 to 12 to 14 minutes each. And he has many students now who are also presenting these. Anyway, I, I just admire what he's doing. And... Um, if we have time today, I think I'm going to end the class with one of those videos, just so you can experience it. I found it that he'll do a better job summarizing his own teaching than I will. And um, the other thing I want to say about um, uh, Rabbi Foreman's approach is that he's, he, um, uh, he's dealing with a text that is, as we are, patriarchal and uh, male-centered, right? And he doesn't apologize for it. Uh, he's, not, um, he, he's not defending it, but he's just taking it on his own terms and uh, pulling out the teachings that I think actually transcend gender in many, many, many cases. So that too is a layer that uh, we can add to it, but I, but I don't I don't find it uh, jarring because he's simply describing the text in its own terms um, without apology. And that's also, I find, refreshing um, because I can take it from there as I need to. Okay, so I'm gonna explore probably one and a half themes 
Um, we'll see how much we have for the time. Okay, so the question that Rabbi Foreman raises in his videos about this week is why Abraham? Okay, the text of the Torah doesn't explicitly tell us why God chooses Abraham to reveal God, to call to, to reveal God's presence to, and to make this promise to of a covenanted relationship that his offspring will have. It doesn't say why. So as many of you may know from Torah study, that's a question that has bedeviled uh, and fascinated any Torah commentator from day one. And so the classic Midrashim about Abraham, which are brilliant Midrashim, the stories about the story, imagine Abraham's early life. And some of you may be familiar with some of these stories. Uh, Abraham's father was an, uh, had a store where he sold graven images and idols. And Abraham from the earliest age thought this was baloney and there's this whole story about Abraham smashing the idols in his father's shop. Um, there's a story about Abraham, there's Midrashim about Abraham at the youngest age, going out and looking at the sky and uh, trying to determine where it all comes from, a seeker. They're beautiful stories, but that's not where we're gonna focus today because a Rabbi Foreman looks at the text and so we will too, as another way of maybe trying to tease out what is not explicit in the Torah text itself, but maybe implicit. Um, does that make sense, everyone? So let me turn to the first question that Rabbi, that Rabbi Foreman raises, which is, let's, using literary, the literary approach to understanding Torah, what is the story of Abraham contiguous to. It's chapter 12 of Genesis. Chapter 11 of Genesis is the story of the Tower of Babel. So is there a relationship between the story of the Tower of Babel and the introduction of Abraham? Uh, and so let me share a document with you where I've excerpted some of these verses so that I'm not scrolling through madly uh, um, the Torah text on the screen. Uh, let's see, here we go. Just a moment. No, that's not what I wanted. Excuse me. Here we go. I'm gonna do it right this time. Um, here we go. Okay. And I'll go to the top. Can you all see it? Is it large enough? Okay. Okay, good. So, a central phrase of the Torah is shame, a name. And why is Abraham's calling contiguous to the Tower of Babel story? Okay, in the Tower of Babel story, it says, And they said, come, let us build us a city and a tower with its top in the sky to make a name for ourselves, else we shall be scattered all over the world. This idea of people building a city and a tower in the center of the city with its top in the sky, remember this is right after the flood and the, the earth has been repopulated or is beginning to be repopulated. And they want to make a name for themselves. By the way, as always, type any thoughts or in the chat that you, that you want. 
And then, of course, we know what happens. God scatters their languages so that they cannot accomplish this. And the, the story, which has many resonances in ancient Near Eastern uh, politics and, and storytelling, is that they named the place Babel because Babylon, the name was Babel, but Babel also in ancient, in, that, in those ancient languages, Babel, Balal, means a um, cacophony, nonsense, you know. So with wordplay, there seems to be a critique of ancient Babylon by the shepherds and farmers of the land of, of Israel. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're focusing on the, name, the word Shem, name. And I should say that the word Shem and the word Sham, um, Sham means there. So those two letters, Shin and Mem, recur as is typical in the Tower of Babel story, which is only nine verses, seven times. So we're hearing the resonance of names and place and place and names and make a name in this place over and over in that story. Let us build a city and make a name for ourselves. Whereas here, when Abraham is called, Abram still, his name is, is called by God in the next chapter, it says, and yod said to Moses, said to Abraham, go forth from your native land, from your birthplace, from your father's home, to a place that I will show you. That's verse one. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, hmm. and you shall be a blessing. Okay. Um, now, just to keep that, so here, God is going to make Abraham's name great, as opposed to the people who say, let us make a name for ourselves. That's one resonance, which we're going to go deeper into. But I should note, it's very interesting, again, the way biblical mm, language is used, that one of Noah's sons, name is Shem, right? His name is name. <laughs> and Shem is the ancestor of Abraham. Right after the flood and after the tower, tower there's a break with a genealogy. And it says, Ele toldot Shem. Shem ben Ma'ashana. Shem was 100 years old when he begot Arpachshad two years after the flood. And then what follows is 10 generations. Um, to, that is a motif because after the Cain and Abel story, can you see me okay? Uh, it says my connection's unstable. Eh, nothing I can do about that. Um, if it becomes untenable, let me know. Okay, so between before the flood story, there are 10 generations listed between Adam and Noah. And then after the flood story in the Tower of Babel, there are 10 generations between Noah's son Shem and Abraham. So again, it appears those what to us sort of uninformed readers is a list of names is again part of the literary structure of the text, connecting eras um, with significant numbers, which we know is how, and words, which we know is how the Torah likes to construct itself, is constructed. So I found it fascinating that the name of Shem is Shem, is name. It's like, this is the line of name. Uh, and now we're going to <clears throat> jump 10 generations from the flood, from the Tower of Babel, 
where they make a name for themselves, one make which God foils, to Abraham, whom God, for some reason, chooses to make Abraham's name great. Um, so here's another link between um, the tower story and Abraham's story, because now you start to see literary connection. At, at, in, in the story of Abraham, Abraham then goes to the land of Canaan, and it says, yud appeared to Abram and said, I will assign this land to your offspring. And Abraham, yiven sham mizbeach ladonai, built an altar there to Adonai. Whereas, it says up here, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower. Abraham's first act upon hearing that his name will be made great is to build an altar to Yudhei Make sense? So immediately we start to get a feeling that there's something about Abraham that's other-centered rather than self-centered. That the entire struggle of the Torah that begins with God creating the human being and the human being behaving selfishly, which is to the creator's consternation. Wait a minute, I made them in my image. What's going on? Again and again, whether it's Cain and Abel or the generations that lead to the flood that are filling the land with their violence or to the Tower of Babel immediately after the flood. Human selfishness seems self-centered, I should say, human self-centeredness, it's all about me, is the great obstacle to humans fulfilling what God's intention was for us, which is to be other-centered, to understand that we are channels of blessing. I will bless you, I will make your name great, and then you shall be a blessing. So, so God says to Abraham, it seems to me in the story of the Torah, the creator continually is trying to figure out a strategy where uh, humans' natural selfishness can be um, transcended somehow by human beings. I think it's a great description of the human dilemma. And so now God is saying, okay, I'm going to do this with Abraham. Because Abraham's first impulse is to build an altar to God, and then it says, from there, he moved on to the hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And he built there an altar to God. And Yikra Bishem Adonai and called out yod by name. So whereas it's the, um, the builders of... Um, the tower, it says, and they migrated from the east. And then Abraham moved to the hill country east of Bethel. They came upon a valley and settled there. Abraham just pitches his tent. Abraham is not settling there yet. Uh, his descendants may, but Abraham is doing something else. And instead of building a tower, again, we hear the word, Given, um, Abraham builds another altar. In other words, Abraham builds an altar everywhere he pitches his tent. And everywhere he pitches his tent, he calls out to the name of God. He sanctifies the great name of the ineffable name, the one that we can't see, the one that is infinite. Abraham 
seems to have an innate understanding that that it's not about me. Other clues that we get. To, oh, let's see. Okay, now I'm ready for this, this next um, quote. So this is where patriarchy and the system out of which these stories were told, you have to understand, which is that the, the family name, which is a, still a modern concept, you know, think about it. It's like, until, until feminism, the family name was the male name, right? And you just took it on. And, you know, we're the Kliglers. That's my dad's last name, right? How are we going to pass on the family name? We're not going to besmirch the family name. You know, this is a very modern concept. Uh, oh, Gail, do you want to say, do you want to elaborate on that comment? Uh, and Rob, we're going to get to you too. No, I just, I just was looking at the Hebrew and realizing that shame is there, Sham, and oh, shame is right. Oh, beautiful. Name is always there. Wherever there is, it's there, is God. There, here, Perfect. there. Because <laughs> so as, 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 as Gail, that's beautiful. The Shem, the name of God is always there wherever you are. Right. Just like a name of God, as you know, is Hamakom, which right. means the place where you place. are. But the pun, so when, when he, I was looking, when he builds the altar there, he builds the altar, the name. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, is. You can probably translate it in let some way come, like that. Let me come to it. Uh, let's see. Vayiven sham mizbeach ladonai. Also in the previous verse, Vayiven sham He built a name uh, there as, a, as an altar to God who had appeared to God. He, by Yven Sham, and he built the name there, a, say, a, an altar for God, by Yikra Bishem Adonai, called out the name of Yudhevape, the one, the name. Thank you, Gail. Um, I think there's a lot to that. I really do. Um, witnessed by the fact that one of the traditional Inter rabbinic interpretations uh, uh, of one of the names of God is Hamakom, which means the place where you are, there, you know, here, be here, be there, you're there. Wherever you are, there you are. There's so many ways to read that in English that also resonate. That's beautiful. And Rob is doing a beautiful wordplay. Since Shalom contains the same letters as Shem, are there any connections? Well, I can certainly make some, some uh, um, poetic connections because Shalom comes from the root Shin Lamed Mem, which means complete, whole, or perfect. So if you take the word Shem and you insert the Lamed into it, then you're also talking about a oneness. That is the name. And you won't be surprised to know that the rabbis are very clear that one of the names of God is Shalom. Wholeness, peace, perfection is a name of God. So there's a lot there, Rob. It's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay. Now, boring down a little into this idea of what it means to, uh, what it means to, um, honor the name and keep it alive. Uh, bear with me while I explain this. In chapter 25 of Deuteronomy, there is a law. When brothers dwell together and one of the brothers dies and leaves no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall unite with her. In other words, the brother-in-law, the brother of the deceased, and he shall take her as a wife and perform the levier's duty. Levier is the English word 
Um, um, uh, Ellen, I'm going to read your comments soon uh, after I finish this train of thought. Um, okay, so the levier is the brother-in-law whose responsibility it is. Why? Because the first son that she then bears shall be accounted to the dead brother that his name may not be blotted out in Israel. So your name is also your legacy, right? Yad Vashem, which means a hand and a name, means in, um, is, a, is a, an idiom in ancient Hebrew for a memorial that you create. And that's why Yad Vashem is the um, name of the Holocaust National Memorial in Israel. And here the word Shem comes up twice. Then when the firstborn is born, Yakum al Shem Achiv Hamet, he shall be established on the name of his deceased brother, that his name may not be lost in Israel. This relates to the daughters of Tzolofchad, whose father only left daughters. And again, we're talking a patriarchal society where the name only comes through the male. And they say to Abraham, let not our father's name be lost to his mishpachto, his, his mishpacha, just because he had no son. Give us a holding among our father's kinsmen. And so to preserve the name, they are given permission to marry within their clan in a way that the firstborn of each of them will, be the, in the, will have the name of their deceased father. And they keep the name alive that way. So this business about making a name is so important in Torah. I'm going to read Ellen's comment. It's a quote from Dick Schwartz, and it's called No Bad Parts. We need a new paradigm that convincingly shows that humanity is inherently good and thoroughly interconnected. With that understanding, we can finally move from being ego, family, and ethnocentric to species, bio, and planet-centric. Thank you. Do you want to say anything more about that, Ellen? I'm sorry, I don't have my full screen up, so I can't see you, but, uh, or you just want to let it stand. Um, okay. Well. Just really that so much has been made of people who are basically selfish and all that stuff. And it turns out that that's where we've been stuck, but it's yeah. not the inherent goodness and that to work with that is um, absolutely necessary. Thank you. To make the shift. That's right. And that's the shift that God's trying to make through. Exactly. Calling Abraham. That's right. That's right. Because Abraham seems to be someone who can manifest these qualities. Uh, let me read what Ruth said, and then I'll explain why, how these passages that I just read relate to Abraham. It seems connect with Ein Od, as we occasionally chant at the beginning of Aleinu. Yes, Aleinu ends, V'ne'emar v'haya Adonai l'melech al-kol ha'aretz, v'yom ha'hu yeh Adonai echad u'shemol echad. What does that mean? As it is said, V'ne'emar v'haya Adonai l'melech there will be a day when the divine presence, yod heh vav is is sovereign over all of our consciousnesses. On that day, yod heh vav will be one, and yod heh vav name will be unified. So that's also, yes, that's, that, this is the way Hebrew works, and uh, God's name, as we all know, this beautiful paradox of an ineffable name that we can't actually hold on to is a consciousness that we are not the reason we're building a tower to the sky, that there is a greater presence 
and purpose, whose name has a thousand names, infinite names, and that we call out to that, that oneness, that name. Um, thank you. Now, the reason I bring up this Leverett marriage thing about keeping the name alive is that in the beginning of um, the Abraham story, I think I have to show it to you on um, the full text. I didn't cut and paste this. Here we go. And Terach had lived 70 years, and he begot Abram and his brothers Nahor and Haran. Now this is the line of Terah, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran begot Lot. Lot is Abram's nephew. Haran died in the lifetime of his father Terah in his, Terah in his native land, Ur of Kastim. So Abram and Nahor took to themselves wives, the name of Abram's wife being Sarai, and that of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Um, okay. So this is confusing. It looks like Nahor is following the um, the tradition of marrying, in this case, not the wife of Haran, but Haran's daughter, Milka, even though this is his niece, what can I tell you? Um, that's endogamy for you. Um, in order to keep his brother Haran's name alive. And Sarai is identified in the Midrash as Iska, because the language isn't clear. Because elsewhere, Abram talks about Sarai being his sister, being his, you know, we know that Sarai is Abraham's cousin from later in the text. So are both, so somehow, Abram and his brother Nahor are keeping their brother Haran's name alive. That's why I showed you the, those verses from Deuteronomy. Except that Sarai was barren and had no child. And Terach takes his son Abram, his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and they set out together from Ur of the Chaldeans for the land of Canaan. But when they came as far as Haran, they settled there. And Terah died in Haran. Okay, so it appears possibly that Abram, because he's fulfilling a uh, the selfless um, uh, impulse to keep his dead brother's name alive as opposed to make a name for himself. Remember, the firstborn becomes the, of, of, in that marriage, belongs to the deceased, the deceased brother. So there's maybe something about Abraham's selflessness that God notices. Now, why isn't God noticing Nahor's, his brother's selflessness? I don't know, but Nahor doesn't come on the journey away from Urakastim. Abraham's already on the journey. So Rabbi Foreman is pointing out with all of this um, uh, wordplay and all of this focus on names uh, that maybe Abram is noticed by God because of Abram's selflessness. And maybe Abraham's adoption of Lot, because remember, Abraham is going to take Lot with him. Um, his, uh, his Lot is his nephew. 
Um, Abram went forth as Yudhei had commanded him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Um, so now let me um, uh, lay out just for a, a couple of minutes what um, Rabbi Foreman then does, which is, um, he says, maybe Abraham, he then shifts. So that's, that's the piece about names that I wanted to share with you. So now Abram is on his way and he has taken his nephew Lot under his wing. And Abram has been promised by God at the beginning of this story that God will make Abraham into a great nation and all the nations of the world shall be blessed through Abraham and his offspring, his progeny. But Sarai is barren. And remember, Abram doesn't know the end of the story. We know the end of the story. But let's imagine not knowing the end of the story and going anyway. You have your barren spouse. No, you're 75 years old. No indication that you're going to have a, ch a child of your own. And yet you go. So, can we speculate, Rabbi Foreman teaches, can we speculate that Abram is assuming that this is about Lot, his nephew, that it's through Lot that the name will be continued. And Abram selflessly, not thinking about his own name, but thinking about this this, this promise from God, maybe Lot is the one. Uh, put yourself in, in the shoes of not knowing the end of the story and yet going forth anyway. So then here's some more texts to share. Abram took his wife, Sarah, and his brother's son, Lot, and all the wealth they had amassed, and the persons that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And yod appeared to Abram and said, I will assign this land to your offspring. And maybe Abram's thinking, okay, I guess Lot is my offspring. And then what happens? They go down to Egypt, they come back, and then they are very wealthy, and Lot's shepherds start arguing with, fighting with Abraham's shepherds, and the two of them say, this land ain't big enough, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. And Abram says to Lot, well, just look anywhere, and you get to choose where you're going to go. And Lot looks down into the green Jordan Valley and sees Sodom and Gomorrah down there in their, uh, in their verdancy and fertility and says, I'll go down there. And says, and Lot went and settled in Sodom. Okay, so Abram has let Lot go. Perhaps Abraham's, the narrative Abraham was creating I guess it's Lot. It's like, uh, okay, that's not working out. So Abram doesn't, once again, Abram's constructed narrative of what this promise must be is like, it's gone again. And then what Rabbi Foreman points out is that in each case where what might be a, a story that one can figure out about, maybe this is, what, this is what it means, and it falls apart, each time, there's an interjection where God said, and yod said to Abraham, after Lot had parted from, parted from him, raise your eyes and look out from where you are to the north and south, to the east and west. 
for I give all the land that you see to you and your offspring forever. Um, hold on, then we, yeah. Okay, so let me talk about Lot a little more and then we'll get to Ishmael. Um, so then Lot in the next chapter, you know, um, these chapters don't necessarily hold together narrative wise in many ways, but he's playing this beautiful literary game of finding, trying to find a thread through them that I find persuasive. He then, what happens next is that there's a battle between different tribes and the kings of each tribe. The kings of these tribes defeat the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and they take Lot and his household as captives. And word comes to Abraham that Lot has been captured and he immediately musters his allies and goes and recovers Lot and, um, uh, and wins the war. And the king of Sodom comes to meet him and says, hey, listen, I'll take my people back and you can keep all the booty um, from the war. And Abraham says, not a single shoelace. I'm not getting involved in this at all. But Lot goes back to Sodom. Then later we know that Lot's still in Sodom when Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed and escapes by the skin of his teeth because the angels tell him to get out of there. But Lot is out of the picture of Abram's life at this point. We don't hear about Abram and Lot interacting anymore. So maybe Abraham says, you know how we're always trying to figure out life? Um, so after Lot finally disappears again back to Sodom, it says, sometime later, oh, this word should be over here, and whenever the Torah says, after these events, it's very clear that you're supposed to link the two, whatever the previous ones were. Yodhe came to Abram in a vision and said, fear not, Abram, I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great, which is, by the way, where Magen Avraham comes from. Magen means shield. Your reward shall be very great. At this point, Abram's having a crisis. Because his, in, again, in the narrative that Rabbi Foreman is eliciting from the text, his whole picture of his nephew being the one who's going to inherit is now gone. And says, Abram says, oh, you'd have a God. What can you give me seeing that I shall die childless? And the one in charge of my household is Damasic Eliezer, Eliezer, my servant from Damascus. Um, Abram said further, you granted me no offspring. So I guess my, um, that my slave, my steward will be my heir. Is that what you meant? Okay. Uh, Abram just struggling to understand this journey he's on, where he's trusting the promise, but not understanding at all how this fits in with his life experience. And the word here is faith, of course. Um, the word of Yodhebabe came to him in reply. Nope, that one shall not be our heir. None but your very own issue shall be your heir. And God took him outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars. If you are able to count, if you are able to count them, so shall your offspring be. And because Abraham put his trust, Amon, in yod God reckoned it to his merit, tzedakah, his righteous merit. So, it seems like Abram's path, having been picked out by God, is quite a continual test of trust in the journey, in the calling. So then we know um, that Ishmael is then born. And I didn't include all the texts. Um, and we're into next week's portion already. So I think actually what I'm going to do is I'm just going to keep keep talking and then finish this lesson next week uh, because the two parshas really do make a, a unit 
of story of 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 saga. So Sarah said, "We know what happens next." Sarah says, "Here, take my servant Agar, my my slave, who is and and have a child through Agar." And I can imagine Abraham saying, "Oh, that's it. Now I understand." And goes and. Hagar becomes pregnant, and when she's pregnant, you know the story. It's like Sarah gets jealous because Hagar seems to be mocking her, and she kicks her out. And um, God says, "Do whatever Sarah says, Abram." And can you imagine? There's this baby coming, and Abram thinks, "Okay, this is it." And then the baby gets kicked out. It, it's like, wait a minute. Am I supposed to actually keep understanding and believing in this promise? This is nuts. Um, and then God cares for Hagar, convinces, tells her she must go back and accept Sarah's treatment. And Ishmael grows up there. Um, uh, and I imagine Abram's thinking, okay. But no, um, uh, okay, good, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of head towards that and then we'll continue this discussion next week. So then God says again, and I think I need to look this text up so I'm making sure I got it right. Um, Uh, right, so it's before, uh, um, once Ishmael is kicked out, that's what it is. We're still in Lech Lecha. Once um, Hagar is pregnant with uh, Ishmael and is sent out into the wilderness, uh, and um, uh, Abraham's... Um, uh, Abraham's ideas about what's going to happen next are, are dashed again. God says, I'm making a covenant with you. You shall be the father of multitude of peoples, and no longer are you to be called Abram. Your name is to be Abraham of Raham. And uh, I am going to make you exceedingly fruitful, turn you into nations, establish my covenant with you. So let me just tell you, so you must circumcise all the males of your household. And then, by the way, Sarah's going to give you a child. And that's when Abraham laughs and falls in his face and says, can a child be born to a man of 100? Can 90-year-old Sarah bear a child? So once again, this promise of a covenant after Abraham's idea about what the divine plan might be is once again dashed. This promise of a covenant is repeated with an even more outlandish possibility. Well, is Abraham going to hang in there? That seems to be Abraham's greatness, is his willingness to keep following the voice that is not his own wealth and household. And so it's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be Isaac. And of course, we know what happens. And I don't think I'll launch into this right now. Um, we'll talk about this next time. But here's where the whole saga of these two portions come together. From the beginning verse 
to the last chapter of the sacrifice, the, 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 um, the uh, command from God to bring Isaac up to a mountain and offer him as an offering there on the mountain. Um, and what um, Rabbi Foran points out, and that some of you know, and, and that this is, this is some uh, kind of a, a uh, um, fundamental piece of biblical literary structure is that when the Bible wants to make a point, and this is true of other ancient literary forms as well, it does something called a chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M, which is like a sandwich of language. So in Hebrew, it's called atbash. This isn't just a modern literary um, word. In, in rabbinic Hebrew, it's called atbash, aleph, taf, bet, shin. Now, what is aleph, taf, bet, shin? Aleph is the first letter, and taf is the last letter of the alphabet. Bet is the second letter, and shin is the next to last letter. So what atbash is, is you look at correlations between beginning and end of passages, and, and especially linguistic correlations. And you'll note, as did our, the rabbis noted 2,000 years ago, modern literary scholars note this, biblical scholars, that passages in Torah are often constructed A, B, C, B, A. And that, no, A, they usually do it like this, A, B, C, B prime, A prime. And they will find, we will find this over and over again, incredible correlations in these literary kind of units where the theme of the word language, the word used in the A and the word used in the A prime at the end, the Aleph and the top of the story, are creating a, a container for what happens in between and that the actual heart of the matter will be found in the center of those correlations. We're gonna go into that in much greater depth next, next week. But to give you the clearest idea I can, here's a chiasm. At the beginning of the story of Abraham, it says, Vayomer Adonai el Avram, lech lecha. That's this week's portion. Go forth. Also, go for yourself or go to yourself. But this phrase, lech lecha, only appears here and one other place in the Torah. God said to Abram, go forth. It appears in the last chapter of next week's portion. Vayomer, God said, take your son, your favorite one, Isaac, whom you love, velech lecha, and take yourself. Now, these, we will hear from that and assume, based on our understanding of how Torah is constructed, that we are supposed to be hearing the whole section from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22 as a package, as a narrative package, because we're because of these literary, uh, these, these parallelisms between the beginning and the end. And of course, that's not the only parallelism, as many of you, I'm sure, have realized in the past. Lech lecha me'artzecha u'mimoladetcha u'mibet avicha. Go forth from your native land, from the house of your birth. Oh, sorry. Oh, this is a poor translation. Isn't that weird? They left out the triad. It's lech lecha me'artzecha, from your land, your native land, umimoletcha, from your birthplace, umibetavicha, from the house, from your, 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 the house of your, your family's house, 
So it's big, smaller, more uh, specific. El Haaretz Asher Eka to the land that I will show you. And then in chapter 22, Kachna, take your son, your only one, the one you love, triad, Isaac. Belech Lecha, El Eretz HaMoriah, to the land of Moriah, Bahaleu Shamla Ola, and Offer him up as an offering, Alechat Heharim Asher Omar Elecha, on one of the heights that I will point out to you, that I will show you. So God's first words to Abraham, and then after a huge saga of events, God's last words to Abraham are parallelisms. A and A prime. Now, when we think about Isaac, and I'll close with this thought, when Isaac is born, Abraham must feel like, remember, he doesn't know the end of the story. Abraham perhaps thinks to himself, oh, I never expected this, but now I see how the promise is going to play out. I have a son with my wife, Sarai. Okay, it wasn't Lot. It wasn't Ishmael. Here we go. And then the climax of Abraham's story, after being promised over and over again, the climax is now, you think you know the story? No, no. Take this promised child and give him up. Give him up if you are going to continue to trust in the call. And again, don't go to, he's murdering his child. That's not, that's not the thrust for me of, of how this is being told. It's like, what, why Abraham? Because it seems that Abraham is not trying to constantly make his own name great but is trying to heed the great name, which, which is incomprehensible in the heart of our daily experience. We don't, what, what? There's a pattern in this creation. There's a goal. There's a, I'm supposed to, and Ab- Abram seems to be equipped to do this, um, which is why God calls Abraham his beloved friend. And goes in 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 different contexts. And the text is explicit that all of these things that are going on are tests, trials. This is not easy. This is the hardest thing that we can do. Is to is to not consider our legacy from a place of self-centeredness but to consider our purpose as being um, maybe mysterious to us, but other-centered. I don't know how to say that completely clearly, but I really want to thank Rabbi Foreman for, um, for eliciting all of, these, all of these patterns and thoughts about this portion. And I think next time I, I will continue on this theme for a little while with you, in addition to whatever we cover Next time, uh, Ruth said, interesting, Abraham says this, late fatherhood may be in this lineage, taken literally or not. Are we not told Shem fathered a child at a hundred? I had missed that, Ruth. Um, I'm going to look at the text again. What a beautiful insight. Uh, Shem was a hundred years old when he begot Arpachshat. Oh. You just found another um, another of those literary parallelisms. That thank you, Ruth. That's fabulous. Um, because this is a poetic structure, not a um, not a scientific one. So we hear these allusions, sort of bringing us towards the central question 
over and over again. Thanks, everybody. Um, it was very stimulating to share all this with you. I'm going to pause the recording um, and wish you all well. There you go. Stop.